Hello and welcome to the Negroni Talks podcast, brought to you from East London and supported by Campari. Set up to be lively, provocative debates on issues around architecture, the Negroni Talks are hosted at the Venetian restaurant Ombre in Hackney and organised by Architects Fourth Space with the assistance of Rob Fain and Bobby Jewell. The talks are designed to emulate the opinionated and convivial free-flowing debates found in the fin de siècle European Café Society, being fuelled by food, drink and particularly Negroni. There's no stage, no standing on ceremony, and the audience are asked to participate as much as invited speakers and the chair for the event. These recordings are presented as they happen live, and like the talks themselves, with no frills and little or no editing, to bring you the arguments of the evening, direct and unfiltered. Well, first of all, thanks to Fourth Space, thanks to Ombra, and I think a particular vote of thanks to uh, Campari. How about a round of applause for all three of them? Uh, <clears throat> let's get the party started, because actually, of course, what is London going to look like? What's the UK going to look like post-Brexit? And apart from the broadcasting equivalents of psychic news on Radio 4, uh, the Today programme, the truth is that none of us have got the faintest idea what London or the UK are going to look like in, say, five or ten years' time, because we never do. And we know that futurology is, is a kind of dubious science at best, and that science fiction writers have had far more accuracy uh, in predicting long-term futures uh, than professional academics. However, the here and now of what we do uh, in the next two or three years, especially the world of the built environment, where <clears throat> architects and engineers being optimists in the sense that every single thing you do is about the future, we know that for the next two or three years is going to look fairly similar to the last two or three years in the sense that you've all got jobs on the go, there are things with planning permission that are going to be built, there is infrastructure that is committed and paid for. It's not as though the world comes to a juddering halt. So what I'm hoping this evening, with contributions from um, four speakers from the floor and contributions from yourself, um, we've got a roving mic, which I think we probably will use in case, you know, that we want to leave some of these doors open in case of traffic noise. So um, please feel free to signal that you want to say something in angry response or violent agreement uh, with anything that the contributing speakers have had to say. Um, I think what we're going to do, we're going to kick off with the first speaker, then I think we're going to have some food and stuff and, and drinks, uh, and then, you know, after 10 minutes or so, we'll move on to a second speaker. Does that sound right, Steve, as a sort of informal way of doing it? And we'll get some responses. Okay, and I, let, let's, if we can, try to avoid rerunning whether or not we should have voted for Brexit. I mean, it happened. We should get over, with, over it. I mean, I voted to remain in the referendum in 1975. I voted to leave uh, two uh, years ago. And I think that, you know, there's a lot of experience and backstory. I don't think any of that matters, really. The real question is, what is it that we're going to do uh, to make the post-Brexit condition a success, or, if it really is going to be a disaster, what are the mitigation measures that we might be thinking about, and where, somewhere along the line, 
can we have a bit of fun and a bit of joy uh, out of the whole situation? Um, to kick us off, I'm going to ask uh, Lee Mallet to speak. Uh, Lee, uh, a journalist, covered property, architecture, the built environment, uh, a distinguished editor, uh, and more recently has moved into the world of, actually not so recently, the, the world of consultancy and related to new towns, uh, development, the relationship between design and development and planning. Uh, Lee, give us some thoughts from your perspective. Uh, what might things start looking like and what might we get up to as a result? Thanks, Paul. Um, I thought I'd give you a quick postcard from my mum actually up in Lincoln, because uh, Lincoln, faraway place, of which some of you have probably never heard, um, is one of the most staunch Brexit cities. Lincolnshire is one of the most staunch Brexit places in the country, um, particularly because of perceived problems in uh, Boston, which is also in Lincolnshire. Um, and this, I said, so I asked her, why are you uh, such a Brexit fan? I get this in the ear every time I go up there. Immigration. We can't choose who we take. Plus a feeling that immigrants are taking over their towns and schools, particularly in Boston. Loss of sovereignty. We've stood alone before, she said to me. Um, unaccountable EU fat cats running our country. Uh, a feeling of being ignored and left out whilst the southeast has got rich. Now, I'm not saying she's right. Um, I'm just saying these are deeply entrenched, widespread points of view when you get out of London that drove the Brexit vote, which uh, British politicians of all stripes are perceived to have failed in addressing. Um, perhaps most important for, uh, among these, for me, a, a kind of Eurosceptic Remainer, is that uh, in my work as a journalist over the decades now, I've observed how uh, 40 years of kind of fairly transformational growth unleashed by neoliberal economics have failed to, to be sufficiently inclusive, particularly of the north and uh, deprived areas of the country and deprived people. Um, we should have spent more time on tackling other pressing issues, housing, education, healthcare. For me, Brexit feels like a protest vote about the failures of success. Paradox. Driven more by domestic grievances than a desire not to be part of Europe. British people want to be friends in Europe. We've had four centuries of cataclysmic wars. No matter how much we love the culture, the European culture that we come from, it's delivered the most globally cat cataclysmic events. The the worst things we've ever seen in history. Um, and if Brexit, if, if Brexit is anything European, I suspect it's rather a vote not to be part of an oppressive, unaccountable, remote EU superstate, uh, which recently has made economic vassal states of Italy, Portugal, Spain, and Greece, insultingly known as pigs. So what will, post, so what will a post-Brexit London uh, look like? Um, I mean, I think here in London, we see all of these issues very differently. We like immigration. London's economy has been driven by immigration for 200 years, 300 years, possibly more. Concerns about immigration, however, are nothing new. 
I've just been reading a really great biography that, uh, of Joseph Conrad by the US academic May Jasanoff. Um, really great book, thoroughly recommend it. Conrad's book, The Secret Agent, was written in 1906, a year after Parliament passed the Marquis of Salisbury's Aliens Act of 1905, which for the first time in UK history limited immigration. After fears about anarchist terrorism, uh, as portrayed in Conrad's novel, The Secret Agent, which was set in the late 1880s, Conrad himself, of, of course, was uh, one of tens of thousands of European and international seamen who operated Britain's globally predominant merchant fleet. Uh, he found in Britain and the Merchant Navy a new home and a new career away from the unstable Russian oppression of his own Poland. You could view the architecture industry, or the city, or Silicon Roundabout, or Canary Wharf, as our new kind of merchant navy, having set sail in this era of modern globalization. Conrad was obviously a key observer of an earlier era of globalization. Are these activities, is London threatened by Brexit? I don't think so. I think London is more threatened by Trump's international trade war, which could have some very nasty, substantial global effects. Of course, there are fears. The tap of international talent will be turned off, but I suspect difficulties around this particular problem will be sorted sufficiently for pragmatic reasons not to be a serious problem. So what's so good about London that it will, in my opinion, ride this storm? Rises in stamp duty, reductions in tax benefits for private landlords have, for example, whipped the cream off the top of the resi market. But the fundamentals of London as a place to park or invest money in new homes, for example, or other things, remains, in my view, utterly undiminished. It's been 35 years since council housing buildings stopped. In those 35 years, London's population has risen from six, 6 million, which is what it was when I arrived in London in 1979, to, uh, to an estimated 8.1 million today. In that time, we've built perhaps only 650,000 new homes. We're still only building 29,000 a year of all sorts. So we need, A, to catch up on the truly mountainous backlog and to hit a target of 66,000 homes a year. So who's going to do that? Do you think it will involve architects somewhere on the line? Uh, so here's a partial answer. There's estimated to be more than 50 billion lined up to invest in new PRS, the PRS sector. Investors like the world's largest provider of rented homes think the whole of the UK, not just London, is one of the most promising places in the world to invest. In addition, the majority of London's 33 councils, who each have, you know, if not a billion, multi-billion pound portfolios, they're all hunting through these portfolios now to find new development opportunities. And this is the kind of most radical shift in London's approach to housing in four decades. Um, one of the largest, if not the largest, housing development scenarios in the world is currently opening up in London. And the way we think about those issues will require really good design solutions. A developer friend tells me that people are occupying his new office building on the South Bank, um, and he's unable to describe to me clearly what it is they do. 
these people in this office space, but they are in tech. Um, I also hear of companies sending their brightest uh, teams over to London to set up, shared, set up in shared workspaces. Tech companies are taking over the city, physically, economically. They're reinventing banking and along with it a whole host of other industries. Um, tech, I think, in 15 years' time, will occupy as much, if not more, space than financial services. Or some of it will have become the financial services industry. And that's all before we start redeveloping redundant, unpopular, out-of-town retail parks down the old Kent Road. There are 37 major retail parks around London. All look to me like they've had their chips. Um, not to mention high streets. And I, I think London, I've, I've, I, living in London for the last 40 years, I think it's just on this the most amazing roll. I think it's got another 40, 50, 60 years in it as a result of the liberation of its markets, global investment in these, the investment in infrastructure, but most importantly because the rule of law within a stable democracy and the advantages offered by speaking English in an increasingly global marketplace where lots of money is being generated from within economies that have few of these fundamentals in place are as a result and are as a result fundamentally unstable. That's why jumbo jets loaded with gold bars are circulating over London waiting to get in here. Temporary Brexit is a kind of temporary disruption in that desire. So I see London looking not as it does now post-Brexit, but considerably changed and enhanced by a further 60 years of global investment. And it's the job of everybody in this industry to make sure that money is well spent. Thanks. Thank you. So literally, literally and metaphorically, business as usual, and a bit more of the same. Anyone like to make an instant response to this? Anyone wildly agree or disagree with any of Lee's points? And tell, do tell us who you are. Uh, sorry, I'm Richard Gatti. I'm an architect for a practice uh, just up the road. Uh, I couldn't agree more that, Britain, that London is a kind of a sense of a place where people invest because it's part of a global community where people speak English. But I think uh, the, the sense of being part of a global community is being diminished by us leaving the biggest trading block in the world. And um, why isn't that money going to flow to places like Dublin, where people equally speak English and there's a very advantageous tax regime, or Scandinavia or Holland, um, where you can access the European market and not be like us. So why would you continue to invest in London? I think it's just more fun being here. I think, you know, Dublin has tried very hard for 10 years to reduce its tax rates to the point where Google and uh, Pret or whoever it is that's there, they, you know, they pay minimal amounts of tax. And I think that I find those... Um, first of all, the EU is desperately unhappy about what the Irish government have been doing on the tax front. And I think there have been legal actions about that. So... And, and it's kind of Trumpish in a way. It's a sort of trade war to attract. I, I'm sure some businesses would like to be, be in Dublin, and quite a few are, but I can't see it overriding fundamentally at scale the attractions of being in London. Anyone want to follow that up? Kevin Robotham, you're looking cynical. <laughs> I 
can't believe that. Why wouldn't people want to invest in London? Well, because it operates on um, a fiat currency, and that's the big problem. I mean, when you look at the United States, it's $23 trillion in debt. Um, we are absolutely tied to um, the, the suzerainty of the United States and its dominance as, um, within its um, petrodollar empire. The $23 trillion is, of course, on the public account. There are tw there's twice as much on the private account, so you're looking at um, an amount of debt in the United States comparable only to the amount of debt in China that it threatens fundamentally um, all fiat currencies as they stand at the moment. What is the solution? Well, the solution is to print more money. And what does printing money mean? That means it devalues the currency as we stand. What we're looking at is an absolute um, disintegration of the capitalist system under a fair currency organization. That's why you, we, won't see any, um, uh, we won't see any investment in London um, in the long term because there won't be any investment in the West at all um, when these things, when these debts actually come home. How will they come home? Well, the issue... <laughs> I'm sorry, this is fairly depressing. <laughs> You're looking when good on it. Finally, when, people, when people finally wake up to the fact that um, fiat currencies, the dollar, the pound, the euro, and so on, are backed by um, faith, um, they will see, of course, that um, their investments will inevitably disintegrate. And we're looking, of course, you know, this isn't a new phenomenon. It happens according to Piketty anyway, I mean, Thomas Piketty, do you know Thomas Piketty, French um, economist who wrote a, a recent book on capital, undermining the main um, precepts of capital assumption and financial assumption in the West, that capitalism is good and so on and so forth. He shows that capitalism isn't good. I, I don't want to go into detail, but nevertheless, what will London look like? Well, it looks like a shithole now. So it's going to look increasingly worse. London is a, I suppose, what, how can you describe it? It's sort of choking hole. Um, I'm fortunate enough to live in the country, and when I get off the train, I can smell the difference in the air. I mean, you're killing yourselves. We're killing ourselves. The world is fucked. And you're, you're wondering whether development will continue to, you know, pump money into life. What? You're a fucking moron, man. You know, you don't see anything at all. Is that okay? Kevin, that was... It was exactly what I expected, though not necessarily course, what I was the, hoping for. You're the... You, You've You're the circus master, yes, you, I, quite, I, I understand that, Paul. Exactly, exactly. You know, the master manipulator. And and don't you think this is precisely the bloody problem we're facing? You know, that there's, we've, di we, we, we've sort of disintegrated into a kind of manipulative managerialism in which nothing's at stake. We don't produce anything. Architects produce garbage. Look at the city, it's vile. We're not producing things that are beautiful. We can't even come to terms with the idea of beautiful. It's, it's spat on. My God, it's part of a Greek idea that we can't possibly come to terms with. You know, architecture doesn't really exist anymore. I mean, it's become a business-friendly, formulaic, um, pathetic 
excuse for something that used to happen a long time ago. Yeah? I mean, am I, going uh, to Kevin, am I allowed to be cynical? Is this because you gave up teaching? Can I just say, uh, when you get off your train from leafy Cambridge and you smell London, I mean, you just sound like somebody from the 14th century or indeed somebody used to get off when we still had horse-drawn carriages and all you could smell was horseshit and people were fainting in the streets. I mean, you've got to get a life. I mean, the reality is, um, despite your use of the phrase fiat currency to try and confuse everyone, the reality is that the old, the old, the old rules of economics, which is you print money, you get hyperinflation, that old rule from the 1930s, that old rule... And uh, by it actually, who? Can I finish? Are you talking about Keynes? Or are you can talking I, about Hayek? Are you can talking I? about uh, Ludwig van Mises? Who are you fucking talking about? You know, don't give me this bullshit. What, be specific. Well, you haven't, you, heard, you haven't heard what I was about to say. No, well, you're, you know, you're... <laughs> because you know what I'm about to say. You're I like Radio you're 4. You should be on the Today programme. Well, what I was oh, about you. to say, which you don't know, even though you come from Cambridgeshire, is that, um, is that actually... we the same college as you at Cambridge. Yeah. So certain old rules, like, for example, if you print money, you get inflation. Something very odd's happened, because we've been super printing money, but we haven't got inflation... We as haven't a got inflation yet. ...as a consequence. Well, we haven't had inflation, you know, for at least a decade. And actually, the economists themselves are having some trouble explaining why this is. Perhaps there's a different condition. There's if you believe... There's no confusion about why this is. It's Kevin, Kevin... Uh, uh, kept it has to be a conversation... And not an interruption if you don't mind. <laughs> Just because you work around here, you know, doesn't mean you're a hard nut. No, that I have to give to you. Yes, of course. Okay. You be the circus master. Well, thank you for your acrobatics. Um, you've been very flexible. Um, so, to conclude your kind of dystopian vision of London, I want to pick this up because I wonder if there are other people in the room who think that London, I won't use the language, is the sort of place that Kevin has described, or do you feel a bit cheerier uh, about things? I want to pick on Mr. Rogers Agolovich. Oh, Kevin, we're now talking something very interesting, aren't we? You've got a very interesting idea. You take that, and um, Paul says... Okay, he says there's no inflation. Well, now let's have a think about this. So what happened to the capitalist system? So we had 2008, and uh, the system was bankrupt. We couldn't pay our bills, but we didn't declare it was bankrupt. So we did something which we called, gave it a new name. Instead of printing money, which they did in the 1930s, we had this lovely polite word of called quantitative easing. But the relationship between the real value of money disappears as soon as you print trillions of pounds and quantitative easing. So what happened? Yes, we didn't get inflation, but what, we did get inflation in assets. Because anybody sensible said, hang on, this money ain't worth nothing. So I think I'll go out and buy a vintage whatever it was, or a piece of art. Or even more importantly for our profession, a building. And at that point, you get an acceleration in artificial values, which to my mind is just straightforward inflation. And therefore, you get a kind of weird have and have nots. So those people who have gray-haired like myself, that were fortunate enough, uh, when I was a young man, to be able to pick up the odd bargain in the old 
building side and uh, fortunate enough to have been a bust a couple of times but managed to hold on to enough to actually have a bit now. I'm one of the, those ghastly people that are the haves, but it's not me that I'm talking about. It's the next generation and the next generation beyond that. And London as a, London as a capital city has always been a brilliant entrepot of merchant activity. And that merchant activity needs to provide housing. For me, I welcome and love every immigrant I can ever... I am an immigrant. My family came from Russia when they were pushed out of the pogroms. It was a long time ago. It was 100 years ago. My, uh, my great-grandfather brought over his sister because we, they used to manufacture Russian Murati cigarettes, and she was the only person that could teach the people in Manchester how to do it. Immigrants is what built this city and continues to build this city, and I'm kind of so frightened by this turn of events that takes us back to the 1930s, which is all about immigration. We call it Brexit, it's irrelevant. It's immigration. And this fear of what actually is the richness of the human condition saddens me. So I still don't think it, it makes us, it makes us richer in our hearts, but I think we've got, we've got some, some, a lot of things to make. I think it, it enables us actually to go back to leave the wider um, uh, civility of the city and to go into more independent relationships one with each other. Okay, we're going to move on to our second um, formal speaker, uh, Emilia Tiranyi um, from Fiden, and uh, if I may say, granddaughter of the great Tiranyi. The architect, over to you. Yeah, kind of a frightening presentation. Um, first of all, I'm not an architect. I am a publisher, I do books, uh, so I work in uh, what I believe is the creative industry, and I think that architecture is part of the creative industry. And uh, I think, uh, I mean, linking to what he was saying, I think that it's all about people. And uh, I think that uh, in the creative industry, the big assets are the people. And uh, I believe that, uh, and what I feel, I am Italian. I came here to be part of a European country 17 years ago. And uh, um, I feel that the Brexit, yeah, there is a little bit of economy, there is a little bit of, but it's all about the people. It's about uh, being frightening about the diversity and not really accepting what is uh, slightly different from what we are and not be able to accept it. For me, I came here 17 years ago with the idea of, uh, I tried it out, uh, I was supposed to be here for a few months, uh, uh, I, do, I did an internship at the publishing house, uh, the same publishing house, now I am the publisher. So for me it was a very incredibly welcome country and a very welcome culture. What really is the problem for me now is not the in two years, in three years, in four years. And I think that this is uh, the big problem of our culture and society now that everybody is thinking only in one year time and two year time. But I think that the big uh, change will be in five years time, in 10 years time. Because uh, the people who are here 
some will, some will not manage to stay or decided to leave, but it will be a kind of personal decision. I think that what is the real problem is going towards a direction where a country is not welcoming other people. And uh, it's not really about talent. The talent will always be welcome. The talent will always, the, the people who are amazing will always be hired, will always find a job, will always be able to live wherever they want. The problem for me is shaping talent. It's really to have people that come here where they are really young, they don't know what they want to do, and in a place like London, they found the field, the culture, the environment to flourish. And if we are stopping it, this will be a problem in five, 10, 15 years. And we are not facing it. Because people, you know, when you are 20 years old and you decide to go to another country, if you have to have a visa and you have to find a way of living in this country and you feel that you are not really welcome, then you go to Berlin and then you go to Barcelona or you go to Copenhagen and you go to a European city. A term that somehow has become not really a good thing where I remember when we were traveling, you go to a city, you go to Copenhagen and you feel European and you feel that it's a great city because it's European. And now being European seems to be a little bit of a problem. And London was not like this. And uh, I came here and I completely flourished in a profession where not being, not speaking English very well was a big problem, but we overcome this because I felt so welcome that uh, and it was really about the culture that is around this city and the diversity and the amount of different people that will, that is really shaping and building the culture. The other thing that we are not talking about is what will be for English people to go abroad? Because it's exactly the same things. It's not that it's only the European that are coming to London, but it's always a good thing to have an experience abroad. And what would be for the young English people make them really a difficult task to go abroad, to study, to work, to enjoy, to live, to have a profession? And is this continuous exchange that I think that made London a really special city. And uh, of course, uh, it will not change in two years, but what will happen in five years? What if this very slowly way of uh, reacting to diversity and to other culture become a practice uh, where you will just have the same people and the same culture and the same background and the same way of looking at things, it will definitely impoverish, impoverish our culture. Thank you.
Emilia, thank you very much to the unwelcoming London and cultural effects that may make this city a place where people don't want to come because they just feel they're not getting that cheery, cockney welcome that they used to get uh, in days of yore. Anyone like to pick up on this um, who, who's agreeing with that or has a contrary view? Is London going to be completely forbidding and, and uh, unpleasant for anyone to come here? Hi, I'm Paula. I live locally. Um, I don't know many English people. I mean, I don't know if any of you do, but um, I'm not originally English. Uh, you know, I'm half Irish. I'm, uh, you know, uh, one of the great migrations of um, the 20th century. Um, and I don't know how many people really are worried about their kids being able to travel. Does it exist? And the other thing to say is um, cities are migrant objects. They don't just bubble up out of a fertile population near a river. I've never um, met anyone who evolved in London. My family have tried, but, uh, you know, we didn't get anywhere. I did once meet um, somebody whose surname was Miller. Who's, uh, he traced his family back to Mills on the Isle of Dogs. That's one person. Um, the other thing is, economists were put on this planet to make astrologers look good. No economist has ever got any prediction right. Um, and we're in the middle of that, and it, you know, we're going to keep debating it. Uh, I think if we really want to know what the deal is, go back to Adam Smith, you know, not the, uh, the uh, pathetic uh, 20th century economists. Um, and that's it. Thank you very much. Any follow-up to that? Any more thoughts on economics or the welcoming nature of, of London? Please. I suppose I think it, there's something wider than London to do with this sort of move to the right. You see it happening all over Europe. You see it happening in Copenhagen. And I think it is economically linked because there's a quite a difference when you go outside of London somewhere like Sheffield and you go in to the sort of housing estates of Sheffield where people have been sort of in unemployment for three generations and there's a sort of sense of hopelessness where there's no opportunity and the sort of system has failed them and I think there is a issue to do with just sort of lack of hope for people actually and I think that's partly why people voted for Brexit was because they just wanted to push it off a cliff or see something different. And I don't know if it's totally to do with... I think the, 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 the ease is to always try and blame the person who's different from you, and that happened in the 30s, it's happened you know, throughout history. But I think there's a sort of underlying economic problem in the country, which is a sort of post-capitalist society that needs to be addressed, that we won't just sort of sort it by forming a new sort of trade partnerships with other places in Europe. We need to try and deal with the of social division within the country. Um, just, just on what you were saying there, um, I would like to imagine, you know, and I guess what I'm saying is I am going to imagine and be hypothetical here, is that maybe uh, there was um, people voting to leave Europe because they hated the way things looked here. Was it really that depressing? Was it really that bad? that unimaginative, does Brexit actually give a chance for something that's different? 
I don't know if it's the case. I don't necessarily believe that. But, but what you just said made me think that, well, is there a point where everybody was bored fuck about how things were and how things looked outside London? We are talking about how what London will look like. You know, the posters and the, and the text for this evening's talks about London. So I would, I, would, I would actually like to focus on London and pick up and maybe... Paul, I don't know if we go on to the likes of Friedrich and, 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 and get more an architectural point of view on, on, on what aspects of architecture and design in a city can contribute. Well, that's what, exactly what we are, do, are going to do because our next speaker is Friedrich Ludwig, um, founder of Acme Architects, uh, most of whose work actually is either overseas or in this country, uh, is outside London. I suppose most prominently a very beautiful retail arcaded scheme which won lots of awards up in Leeds. Friedrich. Yep. Okay, first hit. Come on. I think I'm, I'm speaking as the architect on the panel, so I should try to be a bit more architectural. I think more than anything else, I think ACME, the, the company that kind of Stefan and I founded some years ago, is in people's business. I think most of us kind of, you know, we produce drawings or some other stuff, but we are a people's business. We are probably 20% English at this point in time, and we have been 20% English for the last 10, 11 years. I think we're about 60% European, we're about 20% kind of outside Europe. And I think that's not by accident, but it's also not by purpose. We haven't been selectively interviewing for nationalities. I think we have 24 nationalities in the office this month, but you know, it's not that we hire people because they sound a bit foreign. Um, we kind of hire on quality, and we have had amazing applications, and that's kind of reflected in the kind of makeup of the office. In terms of where we work, I think we are 20% London, probably 30% outside UK, and then the rest kind of probably 25% Europe, and then the rest Middle East and Australia. And I think, again, that's something that I think is quite special to London that doesn't kind of happen by accident. I think I came 19 years ago. I didn't go back to Germany as German economy was a bit shit at the time. And I've managed in those 19 years to do a lot more things here than I think most of my German peers have managed to in Germany. And I think what we're doing here, I think Stefano wouldn't have achieved in Italy, I wouldn't have done in Germany. London has been a place that has allowed us to do things that we couldn't have done elsewhere. And there was something quite special about London in that sense. I think not just London, but the UK as a country is quite open. And I think whether I've been presenting in Leicester or whether I've been presenting in kind of Leeds or Sheffield, I've never ever kind of apart from, you know, later in the pub had any comments about Germans, or at least you can joke, joke about the war quite early in the presentation and that kind of normally kind of takes this thing out of it. And I think in that sense, we've, we've never had any form of kind of disadvantage of being here or kind of almost an advantage of being in London. Clients from outside Europe have very much liked to come to London and actually visit us here. I think for us, the biggest problem of Brexit in the moment, if you ask me today, um, and I'll try to be positive afterwards, but our problem in the moment and for the last 18 months has been that the quality of applications in the office has dropped. And I don't think we've done anything wrong in terms of architecture. Nothing we've designed now is uglier than two or three years ago. We are finding a quantity and a quality drop in the amount of people applying to us in the moment, and we can't see that going away in the moment. And we will have to work on that, because I think people have come to London for a mixture of reasons, not because of us. I think people came to London because it was a question of a career choice, a quality of life for some time of your life, maybe not forever, uh, a question of culture and education. I think that's what's 
informed who came to us, and I think we will have to work quite hard in the future to try to address that difference that we are seeing in the moment in our HR department, because that is something that is essential to what we do. We are people's business. If the quality of people coming in is changing, we will have to work to address that, or we will have to address kind of how we actually work outside. I think there's three things I want to briefly speak about um, on a hopefully positive note. Um, that I'm hoping for in three, four, five years' time, actually kind of a positive side that comes out of Brexit. I think the first one for me is a lack of excuses. And what I mean by that, I think kind of Europe has been blamed for a number of things, which I think generally have nothing to do with Europe, but has been a great excuse. And part of that, for example, is the RBA abolishing its fee scale, which apparently was because of European, and it's like, well, the Germans and the French didn't get that message. So it would be nice if some of those excuses also on competitions, on the way an OJEC competition is run, because apparently European procurement told us so, which we've had in quite a number of councils, I think, falls away. And there can actually be a national conversation about, not national as a whole country, but architectural and national as to how do you commission work and how do you pay work? And, you know, could we have a fee scale again? How do we, why do we have so little competitions? Why is the OJEC process in this country so much geared towards volume schools? Why is there so little design competitions and is there ways now that actually you're outside the European Union framework to actually rethink how architecture is procured, not just in London, but across the UK. I think the second part that I'm hoping for is I am kind of been waiting for the last 19 years for a house price crash. It never quite came. Um, I do think that's quite an important point of what London actually kind of in the moment is lacking. I think there's an incredible pressure on space and the, the value of space, and I think for London to retain some of the creative flexibilities ahead, space needs to get a bit cheaper again. There needs to be space for opportunities. Ideally, architecture studios shouldn't have to pay quite as much to have a bit more space for workshops, for model making. So I think we can always keep moving out to zone you know, E8 or you know, we can move to zone three, but ideally it would be nice if there is a little bit less bankers with a little less bonuses and a little bit less pressure on the housing and commercial market because I think it would do London a lot of good if space wouldn't be quite so under pressure. I think the third part, and that's mostly not about London directly, but more about all the work we do in the UK, I think Brexit is a big misunderstanding of kind of democratic powers. I think people felt disempowered in the regions, and so much of the Brexit vote is a loss of a sense of direction, a sense of kind of being in charge of where I'm going as a city or as a region. And so people voted, I think, at a protest, hoping that somehow voting against Brexit would actually give the North and Wales and other people more power. I think there will be quite a bit of disappointment. I'm happy to be surprised otherwise, but I think Brexit won't actually empower the regions. And I'm hoping that people will go the next step and that actually if the union with the rest of the rest of Europe was a bit of a bad idea, maybe also the rest of the union within the UK is a pretty bad idea because I think... Generally, if you can't play football together, you shouldn't be together. And so I think kind of, you know, if, if England is playing in Russia because the rest of the country kind of didn't qualify, maybe there is an opportunity for actually Northern Ireland to sort itself out. Maybe they just need to talk to themselves alone because the Irish don't want them either, I think. And Scotland and Wales can just go their own way. And I think maybe that would actually be a final step that would be useful to come out of this. And I do really hope that England would devolve into a proper set of federal states. I think we work a lot in Leeds, Sheffield. We've done Swansea quite a bit. We're doing a lot in Folkestone. We've done Coventry. We've done Birmingham. We've done a lot of UK regions. 
and I think there is an amazing amount of quality to be discovered, and there's an amazing sense of people not feeling empowered, and I do think that London, in that sense, is at fault. London is an amazing Hoover, that Hoover's creative quality out of the rest of the country, and London is taking, I mean, we've lost the tram in Leeds. It was 20, 250 million. It wasn't meant to go through our car park. And the tram was too expensive, and you know, the Treasury cancelled it about three years ago. And we're getting Crossrail 2 with 25 billion. And there's such a massive amount of kind of a national conversation yet to be had about which region it was what. That I, said, I really hope that the UK would find a slightly different way of actually kind of taking the disappointment of direct control and devolution and actually making something positive out of that. Because I think for us, working a lot in the regions, it would be amazing if actually they could raise a bit more of the taxes and they could actually look after their own ways a bit more and therefore get a sense of power again that you know, more or less led to this vote. Thank you very much. Well, football analysis applied to um, federalism uh, and uh, regionalism. Um, actually looks like United Ireland might be one consequence of, of Brexit, but let's see what happens. Let's see uh, if there are any responses to Ludwig. Some kind of guarded optimism about things that might happen, a house price crash. Um, any respons immediate responses to that one? Just to ask, uh, Friedrich, um, you talked about the maybe the, the OGU process and you know the, the competition process and everything you didn't really not necessarily talk too much about what a post-Brexit will look like but is there a clue in what you were talking about in terms of the overhaul of you know the the OGU process you know, basically, they're, you know, they're, 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 it's very restricted here, unlike um, Germany or um, um, uh, France, where there's a, there's a good competition ethic currently, but it doesn't necessarily, it's not so easy here. Uh, what yeah, happens? I think the, the OJIC process has been used as an excuse to not do interesting design competitions here, which is odd, because in France and Germany, as you just said, there's a lot of interesting design competitions, which are under, always following the same OJEC procedure. So I think I've had, for example, in Chester, you know, we've, we've won a big competition because apparently the, you know, it had to be procured that way, and the way competitions are procured quite often, kind of, you know, the guy who got the first initial master plan gets the next one, next one, because you can fudge it in a kind of OJEC procurement style way. But on the other hand, also, there's many ones where we felt like, you know, if you haven't got the experience in the UK, UK values experience many more than other countries. I think in Germany and France, you will find that there's a lot more architectural practices, which are between 25 and 30 people in terms of strengths. Well, I think what I'm saying is that if there was no OGEU, maybe you're agreeing, um, and that might not come up, that, that might not be the case, or there might not be any OGEU, OGEU if there was, um, we, were up, we were outside Europe. Um, would that mean that there is a vacancy there for um, competition for young practices? Competition well, for new architecture, new styles, all that sort of thing. I think what I'm saying is OJEC has been used as a, as a reason not to have more competitions. OJEC falling away, I think, leaves a gap for a conversation about how you actually procure architecture. 
you can answer it badly or you can answer it well. And that discussion, the RBA and others need to lead because otherwise we've got a bad system now and the excuse for that is Europe, even though the rest of Europe seems to be doing the same thing much better following the same rules. But once the rule has fallen away, I think you know, we need to decide, are you going to invite Europeans for a normal school competition? You know, is, is, are there going to be national competitions? Are there going to be regional competitions? You know, why are there much stronger design competitions? Why are in this country practices generally kind of five people or 300? You know, where's that bigger sense of kind of medium-sized practices, which in France or in Germany are surviving on competitions, winning stuff they have never done before? You know, how do you change the rules for how to qualify for a competition? Because in Germany, most people doing schools never done a school before, and they seem to be doing fine. Why is it that, you know, precedent takes such a power within a competition court line? And that's the discussion we should be having, because very soon we could make the rules ourselves. It is, of course, an outrageous suggestion that we can't invent stupid procurement rules uh, to replace those which may or may, may or may not be imposed by the EU. Um, we're perfectly capable of cocking things up, um, as anyone who remembers public sector procurement uh, before we joined the EU and, 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 you know, throughout the 1970s. Well, I'm going to come to um, our last formal speaker of the evening, uh, Vicky Richardson. Um, who uh, was formerly a journalist, uh, ran uh, fashion and architecture and design uh, at the British Council, has been a curator, currently at the London School of Architecture. Vicky. Thank you. Um, I just want to maybe change the, change the, the focus a, a little bit to maybe talk about some of the more political, cultural aspects of Brexit and what, what London might look like after it. Um, I, I think the biggest thing that's, that's shaping our response to Brexit, but also to many other issues at the moment, is fear. And I think it's come across in, in all of the, the previous speakers and, and some of the comments as well. I mean, we live, in a, we live in a society that's just full of fear. It's everywhere. Everything in the press is, is about, um, you know, a, a health panic or a, a fear about... Uh, obesity or a fear about what might happen to children um, or, you know, a, a fear about something, you know, the effect of rap music on, on gang culture, whatever it is. I mean, it's, we're living in a culture that is completely dominated by fear. And I, and I think that the response, the incredible response that there has been to, to Brexit from the, the Remain voters has been really driven by fear and conservatism rather than by uh, a progressive, radical spirit, which is, I think, a big misunderstanding of what's, what's going on. Um, I, think, I think that Brexit was actually a really radical moment that's massively shaken things up. Um, and, and when I think of, you know, we're in a, we're in a Venetian bar here, and you know, this, the idea of this event is to sort of have something of the kind of European culture of discussion and debate and I have many Italian friends and and I know with my Italian friends I can say exactly what I think and we have a really big argument and uh, you know we talk about ideas in a very free-flowing kind of way and then we're friends at the end of it even if we completely disagree and I, I think that one of the fantastic things about that's happened after Brexit is that we're sitting here, we're talking about politics, whereas I, I used to go to architecture events and never say what I thought about anything. You know, it was kind of purely professional, never mix up politics, work. It was, and, and you know, go to a dinner party and it's the, it's the classic 
old joke, you just don't talk about politics at dinner parties. Well, now people do talk about politics. And I think, I think that's a fantastic thing. I mean, I remember an, a whole era that was called Tina. There is no alternative. You know, politics was stuck. It was fixed. Uh, there was a sense that you really couldn't change anything. And to be honest, I didn't bother voting for years. I mean, I, can, I, can, I can't stand any of them, really. The referendum was the first time that many people thought it was worth voting. And the exhilaration of actually making change, I think, is a fantastic thing that has actually unlocked a new the potential for, for a new kind of culture of agency, activism, political debate... Um, and a sense of, uh, potentially, of liberation. I'm not saying that that has actually happened, but for a moment, I think we could see it, and there was that, that potential. Um, and the danger now is that we all become consumed by this sense of fear, and, and we don't take advantage of, of this potential. And I think the fear needs to be challenged in quite a few different ways. I mean, one thing that always puzzles me is how... Architects who, you know, are meant to, well, you do, you know, you, you architects, I, I'm not an architect, but, you know, architecture is meant to be about imagining the future, uh, imagining a different future through space and through building. Um, and so it's not, it's not primarily an economic activity yet. Why is it that architects, whenever they come to this kind of discussion, all they want to talk about is investment and money and economics? I mean, I'm, I'm with the person who said, let's get back to Adam Smith's idea. I mean, Adam Smith wasn't an economist. He was a philosopher, anyway. He never called himself an economist. Economics is really boring, and I think she's absolutely right. Economists never get it right. Why can't architects talk about principles and ideas rather than just be worried about uh, where the money's coming from and whether there'll be any clients and whether any big developers or businesses will ever put any money in London anymore? I mean, you know, architecture's existed since classical civilization. It's not going to go away because we lose BMW or Airbus, you know, that I think, I think we've got to kind of have a bit, of, a bit more confidence in, in what we're doing and actually realise that our contribution to the world is not to sit here discussing investment and economics. And I think, I think also, you know, like, you know, say what you think. Don't just be a businessman. When, when, as architects shouldn't... It's, it's sad that architects seem to think of themselves as business people these days. I think, I think they should, we should talk, be talking about ideas. And, and I think that we should have some faith that actually 50% of the 51% of the population who voted for Brexit are not idiots and bigots and xenophobes, as, as some people might think. You know, there are a very large proportion of the population who are just as intelligent as you and me, they're rational beings, Adam Smith's idea, you know, and the Enlightenment was all about saying we're all the same, we're all human beings with rationality, and that's, you know, regardless of culture, religion, nationality, class, education, and, and we, need, we need to remember that. I mean, Richard Dawkins, I don't know if anyone is a fan of Richard Dawkins, he, I was absolutely horrified that he tweeted something the other day, where he said, yes, of course, there are people who voted leave for reasons other than xenophobic bigotry or fading imperial jingoism. I've met at least four, he says. Um, now, look, that kind of... This is, this is our leading scientist, supposedly. Um, and, he, and that's what he thinks of 51% of the population. I think that's appalling. You know, and I don't think there's architects that you can work for clients or the public if that's what you think of the public I, I, I just 
I just think, you know, that epitomizes to me why architecture is such a middle-class elitist profession, if that's really what we think of the, of the public. So I think, I think we, need to, we need to consider the, the basic principles of democracy here and realize that democracy is about giving, handing over power to the people, putting, putting a choice, putting a decision in, in the hands of the people and then accept, accepting it and, you know, not the end of argument, but, you know, the majority decided at the referendum. That's what they decided. And now we have to get on with it and, and see it through. And in terms of what that future London looks like, I look forward to a, a new type of internationalism that's not based on diktat from the EU, that's not based on constitutions and rules and someone from above saying this is how it's got to be. But it's actually a new type of international Europeanism based on culture, solidarity, understanding people, talking to people, arguing, exchanging ideas, those things. And, you know, the, e the EU, I don't understand why everyone thinks it's so fantastic. It's, it's a set of bureaucrats who are telling us what to do. We don't need them. You know, we can invent our own rules. And I think we can invent a new type of culture and a new type of politics that's way more radical and interesting. Uh, Vicky, thank you for, for a kind of semi-corrective. Um, I can't believe everyone in the room, on the basis of what's already been said, agrees with everything Vicky said. Would anybody like to pick up that um, take issue or indeed agree? Hi there, my name is Francesco. I'm, I'm an architect and uh, I'm Italian. I came here 23 years ago. And uh, I'm going to make a simplification, so forgive me if it's kind of, I don't want to offend anyone. Uh, I've always come to London since the age of 14 to buy records, to see art, and I've been living here. I have a family here, kids go to school. And Brexit has put some sort of ambiguity cultural ambiguity and also social ambiguity in relationships. And I agree with you that the sense of fear is there. Um, I formulated my own opinion in the years I've been living here. And every culture, you, every country you move to has a, a way to welcome people. So more passionate cultures south of the world, they may, uh, much more compassionate. Um, and I had and I don't mean to offend anyone. For me, the secret of tolerance of London, which I, I've always admired and loved, is indifference. If you care about your neighbor, you're never going to be indifferent. I've always lived here, and I don't know my neighbors, therefore I can get on with my own life. Now, that sense of indifference is somehow gone. Every time I do something, even in my designs, uh, we've always done very flamboyant projects. I now question myself, is this the right thing? So I'm not pure, I've lost my purity in this sense of ambiguity that Brexit has put on culture. And so I say that as a professional on one side, but also as a cultural operator, because I do believe that architects operate in culture, but what they do by influencing taste, by influencing what people do and behave in space, and, and so that, at the moment, I need to find a new balance, maybe. So thank you for the advice. I'm really hopeful, Vicky, but uh, 
that's my take on it. Thank you. Thank you. Any more? Yes, please. Uh, so I'm American. My wife's Canadian. My kids are born here, so I suppose they're British. And I first came to Europe in, I guess, around 2000. And what's the most important thing to me is movement. And at that time, you could just easily move. And one of the most annoying uh, experiences I had is we went, you know, we were going all around Europe, and then we went to Gibraltar. And at Gibraltar, there's a customs control, and you have to show your passport, and it's because it's, you know, British. And I thought that was, I was almost shocked by that experience, having moved around so easily. And the thing I worry about Brexit is that it's the lack of movement. The, for, for me as a foreigner, it's, it's so important. I, I don't think about countries, I think about cities. I work in cities. I just want to be able to move around, live in different places. I want my kids to have that same experience. And the more difficult we make the movement of populations and people, I think the less you know, uh, cultural exchange we have, the less um, sort of avant-garde, nature and the ability to challenge ideas because that's a Brexit is in so many ways about cl closing down a border and, and and making more rules when there was plenty in the, in the first place thank you Vicky I point out that you know Europe is a big fortress that keeps people out and and I mean when I worked at the British Council I tried to bring designers, fashion designers from Pakistan to London Fashion Week, and I wasn't able to uh, because of the EU and its, and its immigration rules. I mean, it, it works differently for different people. Fine if you're in the EU, but you know, why, why should we be discriminating against uh, people from outside the EU making a judgment about who's in and who's out? No, the, ref the referendum was for against the EU. It wasn't about immigration. No, you, your popularist uh, sort of vision is to ask the people, but how do you define who the people are? They're coming across boats in the Mediterranean. Should we ask them? No, and I agree with you, yeah, but of course your vision yeah, is one that... Uh, is a benefit to you, possibly because you're American, forgive me, but the, uh, and you know, we, I agree with you, I agree with you. And so this idea that you ask the people and you get somehow a charming answer is absolutely, does not work. You get nothing, but I mean, if you ask the people, they'll probably be hanging people right, left and center for the most minor misdemeanors. Anyone want to pick this up? Yes, please. Hello, uh, my name's Sean. I'm an architect, have a practice up the road. Um, I, I came from Northern Ireland and I moved here about eight years ago. And I'm with you, Vicky. I think fear is the predominant issue at heart and it's a very human thing we all share. And there's a lot of cowardice and um, a, lot of, a lack of confidence to deal with some issues. I'll give you an example. I, um, in Northern Ireland, I, I grew up in a Catholic family. I went to a Catholic school, and I really I grew up with a 
a sort of a loathing for the English. Like, a, and I, I'm, I would be embarrassed to say this a year ago, you know, um, to, to the point where I, I like, I would, I couldn't think about um, having a relationship with someone who is English or never mind working in London, I would loathe, I would, it would be subject of conversation about the, the police, the army and so on, um, and the repression of London and Westminster and so on, right? But I've, I've overcome that because of my, and that was a fear, that was me thinking that I was being attacked and that my nationalism was being attacked. I overcame that by having close quarters in England and in Scotland and marrying an English person and, well, that was a big, <laughs> a big step. And um, it, was, it was an act of overcoming fear, like I'm talking about tears fear, te like scared of um, being repressed, fear of um, my future being predetermined by an, an unknown outside power. And I see a lot of, um, I see a lot of similarities in other parts of my life. Not, it's not just about Englishism or like the control of Westminster in Northern Ireland. It's about, I'm frightened of women in powers of position. You know, I'm, I'm afraid of minorities. I'm afraid of going near children for fear of being attacked, called a, a pedophile or something like that. I'm, I'm, I'm full of fear when I let it go. And um, I think it's a very human thing to talk about uh, and we should all be helping each other with confidence and um, whatever the opposite of cowardice is. So, yeah. Yes, please. I just wanted to say something about the so-called democracy. I think it's kind of slightly absurd that in, in a country where change is so difficult to achieve because of the voting system of representational democracy. As you said, you were too bored to vote because you, or disillusioned because you couldn't make a difference with your vote, really. So that such a huge, humongous issue would then be voted by first past the post because there's still the 49% of the, the people who disagreed. So I think this weird contradiction of within this kind of voting system having an issue like that decided by a first-past-the-post. And I do, I do agree. I mean, I'd be amazing if what you say happens and evolves from it. That'd be great. But I think it's not democracy at play. It's something else. Thank you. Let's take another one. Can I just add to that point about democracy? Two, two points on that. One is, the vote that we had didn't include all the European citizens that were kind of resident here, um, that were completely disenfranchised in a vote that, that related to them more importantly than, than anyone else. And the other thing, Vicky, I was confused by you kind of talking about democracy as a positive thing when you were talking about the vote. Um, but talking about democracy is a negative thing when you're talking about a European diktat, when it's a democratic institution like our own government here. Um, yeah, there are two comments I want to make. I suppose the first is one about fear. I'm not afraid, I'm angry. I've been angry since the moment that that result was announced. 
and it's anger at the amount of money and time that has been wasted that every morning when I, I like the Today program in spite of John Humphreys and every single day for the last two years you have to listen about this Brexit nonsense and actually all that money could be spent on you know projects moving forward instead of spending on thousands of civil servants rushing around trying to work out what to do and um, and then my other point was actually a response to your comment about architects why aren't architects having ideas well architects have been uh, they're subject to patrons they always have been. Now it's different. They're subject to corporations. They're, they depend on business, other businesses. They depend on clients. It's all very nice to sort of sit there and have great ideas. But actually, you know, the, the, the opportunity for architects is to be able to... It's not sort of finding new markets. or It's actually finding the good clients and learning from what happens in Europe. And we're really good in this country, as I think Paul alluded to, creating more complicated rules than actually the rest of Europe have. So OJU, that all of Europe uses, we just add complication to. And, um, and the planning system is another example where in many European countries, they have a very sensible approach to planning, whereas actually we like to focus on the detail of the sort of window that you're using and the color of the brick that's completely irrelevant. So I think there's just, you know, we've had sort of two years of distraction and frustration, and, and I can, sadly, I really can't see a lot positive sort of moving forward in the time that we have getting it sorted out. Thank you. Lee Mallet. You could see um, capitalism as a sort of uh, persistent, malfunctioning hardware, and democracy as an ameliorative software that occasionally springs back into life again and uh, does what it's supposed to do. And I think that uh, Brexit is some sort of expression of that uh, software springing back into life and trying to ameliorate the failures of capitalism which were you know writ so large in 2008 and then uh, the system had the nerve to make us all pay back our own money to dig uh, the bankers out of a hole it, you know it's an outrageous imposition and uh, brexit is some sort of perverted if you like democratic, fully democratic expression of that dissatisfaction with a failure in the system which needs a corrective. So I, I, I feel as though, it, other people have spoken about this, I feel as though I am living through, you know, it's like the, uh, the Kraken wakes. Democracy has woken once more. It's festering and bubbling, and it's trying to figure out what to do. And uh, I'm bloody pleased it is. Vicky, do you want to pick up any of the points made? I just think, I mean, you, you sound like a, a shopkeeper being inconvenienced by 
you know, political change. And I think there are sections of society who always find political upheaval disconcerting and difficult because it threatens their economic situation. I mean, but I, but I just think that this is a, it's a huge opportunity. I, I, a lot of the change that people have talked about, whether that's freedom of movement, you know, the, the whole issue of immigration or, or other fundamental issues to society, I think, you know, the, the problem with the EU is it's a top-down approach to change. It's asking other, other people, those remote people over there, to, to have a shortcut to making things better, more democratic, bringing in, you know, human, the human rights um, charter, the, the working hours, all of these, these things that are top-down measures. There are no shortcuts to improving society. We have to, we have to you know, or every single progressive change that's ever come about in human societies because ordinary people have fought for it. They fought for rights, they fought for the vote, they fought for political change. There's no, there's no kind of shortcut. And that's why, I think, that's why I think the best bet is solidarity and people power and bottom-up change, not top-down change. And I think Brexit was a massive move towards the potential for a reinvigorated uh, sense of agency, political agency that everybody could experience, that, that is not just about saying, oh, you know, those progressive people in Europe are going to make things better. I kind of, I kind of have to disagree somewhat because you talk about top-down, bottom-up, but it's not like that. I mean, I've got a Polish wife who's very, uh, you know, I, I was amazed when I went there for 15 years ago and there's a general cynicism to the system that they would see in Poland. Um, what you seem to fail to recognise is that Europe went through the identity crisis after the Second World War almost wholesale across every country on the continent. What I feel is that, in a, in a strange way, although you could never say this, and it's a, you could say it's a, uh, you know, you're selling people like my grandfather short, is to say that in, a, in many ways, us um, not being... Uh, a sort of overrun in the Second World War was almost, in a, say, in a sense, one of the worst things that could have happened in the, in the modern in our modern times. Because the identity crisis of Europe created the EU. That's the problem. These guys have dealt with it. We haven't, and we've sort of allowed this to go on for 70 years, where we think that somehow we're special. In a time where we're having stuff going on, on across the Atlantic. I think I would be very interested to know what the vote would be now, two years on, or a year and a half on, to say, well, look, you know, our allies are fighting against us, our values are not being upheld, and, you know, what, what, what are we talking about, really, here at the end of the day? I definitely agree with Emilia. I came here 18 years ago, and it was a really welcoming place. And today, I really don't think I would choose to come and live in the UK because I think Brexit definitely doesn't associate anything with being inclusive and welcoming people and trying to have a kind of nice community where everyone works together, exchange ideas. I think it's all about exclusion and about taking some people, yes, if they have some kind of curriculum, but everyone else will just be excluded. So I really don't agree with Brexit being this amazing new opportunity. If it is, that would be great, because I'm not gone yet, but I really don't think this will be the case, sadly. So I think Brexit, for me, is really the saddest moment in 
my 18 years in London. Can I ask if there's anyone here who thinks London will be a better place in 10 years than it is today in terms of housing, infrastructure, landscape, amenity? Me. <laughs> anyone else? I think Vicky's statement is, is, um, is troubling. It troubles me because one of the things about architecture and development, I do development is it has to be optimistic. In fact, actually, most of create, creative endeavor has to be optimistic. And so, in a, in a way, my notion of the construct of the city and the way the city changes is I'm optimistic that every time I kind of think about changing a building or instructing an architect, working on a project, is I'm trying to make it better than it was before. So I'm trying to take something in the context and put something back that will, in, will improve it, is optimistic. And I think the sadness to me is that this debate is kind of castrated. I mean, it's castrated by a kind of, it's, it's tangled into a, a set of kind of premises that has seemed to have spawned a larger a notion on danger of the distaste of immigration across the globe. It doesn't surprise me that people want to come into a city which has got economic activity, where they can actually have a better life. I don't think it's surprising, and as a human being, I, I, I feel it's my duty, my, my civil duty, to welcome people to, to be there. And I think that... I, I'm kind of, I kind of, I, I love the way this city, and, and I, you use your eyes. You go around the city, and you go to an area that where immigrants have come in, and the city changes almost instantaneously. All the shops change. The culture is there. There's no, there's nothing. It's just happened because people believe in it, because they're positive, and they want a future that is better than the one they've left. And I don't believe that about Brexit. Brexit is not that. Brexit is tying itself to a global restraint, to an appalling situation that we face where democracy, surprisingly, in my lifetime, I can now see democracy in retreat. And I love going to India, because in India you have the most wonderful democracy of, of 1.2 billion and you have optimism on every street corner. I think I'm going to uh, draw things at least to a temporary close now. We might come round for a second round a little bit later on. Uh, a most interesting debate. I wouldn't have predicted that we'd end up uh, talking about uh, democracy uh, in India in quite that way. Um, uh, from my perspective, the extraordinary outcome of the Brexit vote, uh, which let's remember... Uh, only took place because of the three principal political parties all guaranteed that they would hold a referendum in their manifestos and you all voted for them if you did vote. So it wasn't a surprise or a shock or a contract. Uh, but what, of course, was a surprise to nearly half the voting population was that the result from their point of view went the wrong way. And I think it's the clearest example probably in my lifetime of the combined forces of the establishment, the BBC, the Church of England, the House of Lords, uh, rebel Tories, uh, combining in one long, ranting, 
moan of displeasure at how the unwashed chose the wrong thing. And this is an extraordinary uh, display uh, of arrogance, which happily I don't think has been much repeated here this evening. And in fact, one might be rather touched by the concern about fear and the concern about that notion that London would be unwelcoming. I think all one can say is we should remind ourselves London's taken in two million people in the last 25 years without building any housing. I don't think that's really the sign of an unfriendly city. Uh, I know, as Vicky said, that the EU doesn't treat anybody from outside the EU uh, as a welcome visitor. Uh, far from it. You'll need your work permits if you can get them. And that's because the EU cults decided that free movement of labour meant free movement of people, a very different uh, kettle of fish. Uh, I agree with Lee Mallet. I think London will be a better place in 10 years' time, with or without Brexit, um, because it's been improving, with the signal exception of housing, uh, over, over the last 20 years. And in fact, if, if, uh, if the, the fact is, well, if you don't agree, you, you, you don't agree, Kevin, I'm summing up. I'm summing up. I'm summing up. That's what summers up do. I'm not a judge. Well, if I were, if I were, if I were, you'd be taken down right now. So you could, you could, you could sit in a room. Oh dear. Which bit wasn't true? You're a bully. You're behaving like a bully. You heard it here first. You're not going to... Let it finish. Not true. Now it's the... I have a right to speak against you, and I'm saying it's not true. Okay, we heard you. You do have a right, Kevin. Yes, and, I do. And you've made your views very clear. Thank you very much for that. Um, my, so my continuation, in fact, conclusion about the summing up uh, is that this sort of attitude, uh, anger, finger-waving, uh, and intemperate nonsense... Is a, is the sort of thing. And there was. Let him finish, though. Well, we don't. We still don't like you shouting. Have you finished? Okay, we... Have you finished? You're not the schoolmaster. I won't let you do that. Yeah, but Kevin, you've got, you've got a point on housing. There's no, still not, not enough housing. Yeah, that's not a point I object. I object. We okay, we heard you. There's a point where continuous objection becomes objectionable. And I think all I would say... In conclusion, is the reason that I feel cheery about the potential prospects for London is that I don't believe that we will carry on with the absurd housing shortage that's uh, characterised this city uh, for the last 25 years because political change is in the air. And the reason political change is in the air 
is because of Brexit. Thank you very much to the speakers for their contributions. No thanks for Kevin for his absurd interruptions. Enjoy the rest of the evening. Thanks for listening. For more on Negroni Talks, visit our website at www.fourthspace.co.uk where you can see all our past and upcoming events or find us and subscribe to the show in iTunes. Negroni Talks, mixing it in architecture.